Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Sergeant and Mrs. Smith, you are going to love this house. Is that a tub in the kitchen? There's no field manual for finding the right home. But when you do, USAA Homeowners Insurance can help protect it the right way. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. It's November 1986, and you find us sitting at a hotel bar in the port of Guayaquil in Ecuador. Down from us, there sits a balding, bespectacled man with skin the color of pie crust in a cheap cafeteria, and a garish blue and white and purple tourist shirt with the price tag still attached. A large portrait of Charles Darwin looms over the bar, his beard as lush as a Christmas wreath. The young barman points out the tag, and the embarrassed tourist reaches to pluck it off, but then, for reasons of his own, fails to do so. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And we are joined today, making his first appearance on Backlisted, Shahan Karinatilaka. Hi. Hello. Hi, Shahan. Shahan is one of Sri Lanka's most celebrated writers. Published in 2011, his first novel, Chinaman, won both DSC Prize for South Asian Literature and the Commonwealth Book Prize and was declared the second best book about cricket of all time by Wisdom. Hmm. Better, better luck next time, Shahan. Silver that. medal. Silver medal. Presumably Wisdom is the best book about, about cricket. Is that the point? Uh, in 2022, his second novel, The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida, won the Booker Prize for Fiction and was described by the New European as part ghost story part whodunit, part political satire. More on that theme later. As well as writing fiction, Shahan has worked as an advertising copywriter and written features for, among others, The Guardian, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, National Geographic, and, wait a minute, Wisdom, <laughs> as, well, as well as writing song and playing bass in several Sri Lankan bands, including Independence Square and Power Cut and the Brass Monkey Band. And furthermore, he has confessed. There's no need to confess it. It says here he has confessed <laughs> it. He has proud of a lifelong obsession with the band The Police. It does feel like a confession. Um, the, the bass player and lead singer Sting has done some things to test my faith over the years. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but yeah, no, no, I am proud of it. Yeah, well, that's good because there's going to be more of it later, isn't there, Andy? Long-time listeners will enjoy what's, <laughs> what I have up, up, up my sleeve. You have your quiz face on, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, the book, 
that Shihan has chosen for us to discuss is the great Kurt Vonnegut's 11th novel, Galapagos, first published in 1985 by Delacorte Press in the US and Jonathan Cape in the UK. Summarising the plot of this, one of Vonnegut's most intricate and ambitious books, is not for the faint-hearted. It is narrated by Leon Trotsky Trout, son of the Vonnegut regular and hack sci-fi writer, writer Kilgore Trout. But Leon is a ghost relating the story from one million years in the future when human beings have evolved into mostly aquatic creatures with much smaller brains, fins instead of arms, and short nubbins instead of fingers. How we got ourselves into this altered state is the burden of Vonnegut's dazzling satire. He follows through many narrative twists, turns and surprises the fate of a small group of 1980s humans who were stranded on an isolated Galapagos island. Unbeknown to them, the rest of the planet has been stricken by a virus which renders humans infertile and shortly after that extinct, but not quite extinct. It is out of this small, deeply imperfect collection of specimens that the human race is able to renew itself. Galapagos isn't the most famous of Vonnegut's novels, but in its dark Darwinian satire, he has created a fable that seems to get more prescient with every passing year. And that relevance is just one of the things we're here with Shahan to discuss. Now, uh, as you listeners will probably be aware, Kurt Vonnegut was not merely one of the um, most celebrated writers of the uh, late 20th century. He was also one of the most um, conspicuous. His public profile was high. He carved out a second career, much like someone like James Baldwin, in fact, as a regular on um, talk shows and on the speaking circuit. And indeed, he was very brilliant at speaking and very brilliant at, at, at going out there and, and giving um, good Vonnegut, as he once said. <laughs> but we all felt when preparing this episode that we didn't want to rely on Uncle Kurt's avuncular charm as a public speaker. So there isn't very much audio here because what we want to talk about and what we all feel perhaps isn't remarked upon enough is Vonnegut's status as a writer. So I can direct you and will direct you via our website to various clips you'll be able to listen to of Vonnegut talking about his work, thanks to the internet, and a couple of interviews that are really terrific, but they didn't seem right to exert them and deny you the full thing. So I'll point you to some things during the course of the episode, and we'll put all the links on our website. But therefore, let's start our discussion as we usually do on Batlist and ask Shaham, when did you first read either... Galapagos, this particular novel, or become aware of Kurt Vonnegut's writing? So it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't love at first sight or first read, unlike it was with the police. It, it, was, a, it was a very slow <laughs> thing over, over two, two decades. So I remember I read Slaughterhouse-Five in college. Um, yeah. you know, it was one of the more pleasant books that I had to read. And um, I think all my 20s, I had a few of these books on my shelf. So Cat's Cradle, Sirens of Titan, Mother Night. You know, you have to, when your reading habits, uh, you know, you eat your broccoli as well as your, your meat. <laughs> so the, the, the fun, he was the fun side. And then I would be reading something related to whatever I was writing and or something that'll make me a better writer and, and all of that. So Kurt was in the fun camp, but I don't think he was my favorite writer or um, I just enjoyed him. I think it was when researching Seven Moons, Again, this was a fun book while I was re researching murders and slaughter in Sri Lanka. But then I think 
you know, it's interesting you say that he um, his celebrity um, and how he became this yeah talk show uh, guest and so on. If you look at his career, it, it's before Slaughterhouse and after Slaughterhouse, isn't it? Um, yeah. And there were some fine novels written before Slaughterhouse, and you can see him warming up to this this great work. But then after that. And it could be, and I'm conscious of this, that uh, after the book, I've just been wandering around talking and chatting and I haven't been, <laughs> not quite talk shows, but I haven't been writing. But, you know, a couple of duds there. I think uh, Slapstick came out during that time. And I really think Galapagos, um, whenever it came in 85, right? Galapagos followed by Bluebeard, followed by um, Pocus Pocus. That was right. a golden, that was a yeah. great streak. I mean, this is why I like the police, five albums. Five tight albums. Most bands, they have that golden streak, you know, TV Wonder maybe in the 70s and all that. <laughs> Thank you for making me reread this. Um, <laughs> I've been busy talking about my own book all the time. It's great to find something that you love. And, and I can see lots of bits in it. And I'm kind of a bit worried about how I thought I hit my tracks. But, um, <laughs> you know, this, this ghost who's telling the story. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. this ghost is obviously, <laughs> well, on yeah. this year, he can go into people's heads. Which is a skill <laughs> my guy didn't have million years into the future. There's also then there's a headless seed, which I thought, oh, I um, uh, that's also a bit too familiar. And also, I think his worldview of inserting himself in into the story. Um, so definitely, when I reread that, and then I revisited Bluebeard, and um, I mean, we can get to his other books later. But Bluebeard also, if you remember, it was a Rabo Karabeki and this abstract impressionist uh, painter, expressionist painter, and. Uh, Again, I can see Seven Moons there, what's in the potato barn? And there's this big reveal of a photograph uh, picture that reveals everything thematically. And yeah, so I think I, I was reading him for fun, but obviously I should have put him in the other category. <laughs> Don't and, worry, Sean, um, we won't ask you yeah. where you get your ideas from on this podcast. <laughs> I love your acknowledgements in which Vonnegut and, um, and Cormac McCarthy and George Saunders are all, are all sort of formally acknowledged at the beginning of, and a lot of other writers too, amongst people. Yes. Uh, who, who it's, that's very, I thought that was very, very honest way of, of flagging up um, the kind Potential of, lawsuits. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was homage. I, I like the idea of Vonnegut as being um, if, if, not unlike Sting in being someone whose artistry is perhaps obscured by their public persona. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's an interesting. Oh, I wasn't I expecting it. us to go there so quickly. But okay. <laughs> I would like to say very quickly I'm very reassured to hear you say that, Shahan. I hadn't read Vonnegut since I was at university. Yeah. before you suggested we read Galapagos. And I'll ask John in a minute, but I can only say my response to Galapagos has been similarly, you know, I'm glad I didn't read this book in 1985 or 1986. There, there are reasons why, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But this to me seems so much um, greater a novel than it was considered to be at the time. And yeah. we'll talk about some of the reviews it received at the time, partly because I think Vonnegut was perceived as being in that long twilight of his career. You know, it was very hard for him to be reviewed neutrally without people bringing to, the, bringing to their reviews what their, their, their ideas about Vonnegut were and who he was perceived to be, partly indeed encouraged by Vonnegut himself. A, a fascinating man hiding in plain sight a lot of the time, I think. Um, John, when did you last read Kurt Vonnegut? When I was at Waterstones, that was when I read Bluebeard when it came out. 
but previous to that it had been you know uh slaughterhouse five like everybody does read it as a student and i remember really really enjoying um bluebeard and you know rachel my wife did publicity for that book um and always said of all the authors she ever dealt with kurt was her favorite she just said he was, he was although he was you know he, he this was not long after he attempted suicide i mean he was he was not without his demons she just said he was just avuncular he was incredibly kind he was incredibly funny you know he had that incredible ability to sort of puncture any situation with a gag what i felt reading this from, from the moment i was I, I started reading it was that i'm in the hands of a master i'm in the hands of somebody who is absolutely i had trust they will they're going to take me to the most insane places but i completely trust them to do it and I have to say, without without um, I, without blowing smoke, uh, Shehan, I that that was one of the one of the things I felt very strongly about Seven Moons as well. There's that immediate, and if you have, if there is some kind of uh, Uncle Kurt kind of uh, kind of flavor in there, that that ability, you know, he was so good on, on narrative. He was so he was so defiantly in in favor of 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 stories needing to needing to to move along. I do now feel I want to go re- back and reread the whole of Vonnegut. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad. So well done on the plot summary, because I tell now I've been reading it around the house. Uh, Mark and Matt, my wonderful publishers, and I said, you should read this, you should read this. What's it about? And I try and start, and midway I'm telling them, I can see their eyes blazing <laughs> over. And, uh, and yeah, there's a computer, and there's the uh, Mandrax, and, and yeah. <laughs> I don't get to the Kankabono girls yet. And um, so it's very hard to explain. But yeah, you are in the hands of a master. But I was wondering one thing. Is it possible to spoil this book? Because everything is revealed, right? Even the characters who are going <laughs> to die. We have it's, an asterisk or a star. Hey, this guy's going to die. Don't worry about him. It's the ultimate anti-spoiler book. He tells ah. you with an asterisk when the characters are going to die. So you're, you're reading it always with the, with the foreknowledge of what's going to happen afterwards. And the final, yeah. the, the, you know that uh, one of the main characters in, in the book, Mary Hepburn, is going to die, and she's going to die because she's eaten by a shark. And that happens very early on in, in your introduction to the character, and it's not until the last amazing last few pages of the novel that you discover ha- exactly how that happens and why it happens. I would say, Shihan, that's one of the um, particular miracles that Vonnegut wrought yeah. is how do you tell a story that is all spoilers that is so <laughs> gripping? Yes. How does he do it? He does it again and again, even while his critics are saying, ah, you know, he kind of meanders around and it, it kind of doesn't stick to the point and it, it, he doesn't develop his themes. Well, that presumes that those people knew what his themes were to start with. And one of the things I found so astonishing about reading this is if this were published now, here in the, in the cursed year 2023, it, it would be perceived as incredibly on point about this, the challenges the human race is currently facing. Yeah, he, he has the global economic crisis leading to starvation, uh, a pandemic where and yeah. so that's depopulation so everyone goes in further the, the the nuts and bolts aren't really explained though i don't know if you need to and then then world war three effectively uh with ecuador declaring war on peru yeah but also tech bros and climate change 
climate change and tech bros, right? Yeah. And tech bros. It's yes. it's all in there. This this kind of living life through machines instead of instead of face to face. He gives experimental fiction a good name. <laughs> the AI character or the the, the computer yeah. character Mandrax. I mean, it would have been science fiction in '86. It's not very terribly impressive when you look at it now, right? It's um, <laughs> mm-hmm. produces a few quotes and uh, translates. We have the Babelfish now, don't we? Called Babelfish, indeed, yeah. yeah. Oh, of yeah. course it is, yeah. Okay, so Babelfish is an invention of the author Douglas Adams, uh, of whom I was and remain a huge fan. Shahan, uh, you are a great fan of Douglas. And John, you have just achieved the number one book in the UK with a new volume of Douglas's writing. So it seems totally appropriate to mention Douglas in relation to Kurt Vonnegut. And I, I wanted to say, Shahan, I remember when I was a child listening to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the radio, tuning into a show on Radio 4 in the UK, where Douglas chose half an hour of his favorite music and writing and radio and what have you. And what I can remember. The one thing I can remember at the age of 12 is that was the first time I ever heard the name Kurt Vonnegut mm. because Douglas chose and read the section from Slaughterhouse-Five, the backwards section from Slaughterhouse-Five. So John and I were speculating whether Douglas's later adventures out in the Galapagos Islands, last chance to see in the mid to late 80s, were perhaps prompted by Vonnegut setting a book in Galapagos and was perhaps Mandarax slightly inspired by by Douglas's invention of a thing called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We won't ever know, but there was Uh a trading of concepts and ideas there. And we should say that Mandrax, it's a a computer which which has been developed by a brilliant young Japanese designer and he and what it does is it, unlike the Babelfish, which was translated because you, you plugged a fish into your ear and it was, it was able to translate, but it can translate constantly. Um, and it also feeds back quotes. It prompts quotes. So it is, it is very like a, a kind of a, a smartphone. And it, it, it's, um, yeah. So, so Shihan, so Kurt Vonnegut has, and Douglas Adams, I suppose. So did they ever, they, they were friends? They knew each other? I think they did meet. Uh, yes, I think they did meet. Um, I find it hard to believe they didn't. Well, we know Douglas Adams read Kurt Vonnegut voraciously, and I find it hard to believe Kurt Vonnegut did not f- read the best-selling author, Douglas Adams. It, it seems impossible to me that he didn't. But I wonder whether, you know, Shehan, if I could ask you, the, this sense of, of Galapagos and Douglas's work with, say, the Babelfish, did it give you a frisson when you read it here in the 21st century? Was it part of the thing that made you think, wow, this guy was not what I thought he was? You're talking about Kurt Vonnegut? I am, yeah. yeah. I don't think I was ever surprised. I just think you're right. I, I used him initially because uh, when I was writing Chinaman, my first, I wanted to get in the head of a, yeah, a drunk old man, which a lot easier these days, but you know, um, and I, I, I hung out with um, uncles and um, taught cricket. But one thing I did, I Carl Muller and Kurt Vonnegut were who I read. I read it 
particularly for that, the way a drunk tells you a story will ramble here and there. And ah, if you stay the course, 17 minutes later, we'll get to the point they made initially. So I knew, you know, Kurt Monigut was brilliant and he had ideas and plots, but they would go all over the show and some of them wouldn't quite land. I just thought Galapagos was a culmination of everything. And uh, it's certainly my favorite of his, you know, we can debate what was his greatest. And I think his philosophy, I think it's much, it's quite overt there and it's quite well formed. So it wasn't a surprise to me, but I just, and I, then I said, like I said, the, the streak, because Hocus Pocus also, um, I mean, that's about a prison break and there's a lot of socialist themes in there, but there's also a number. There's a number, again, like 42, um, of, of his kills and all the women he slept with and all the people he killed, which was equal. Mm. And there's a little puzzle going on. Mm. 82, uh, I think, was the, was, the, was the figure. So I always notice similarities. And I have to, if I may, um, I do a bit of math as well in my <laughs> in seven moons. Um, and uh, if, I, if I may, <laughs> let me put it out there. It was because now there's the blue tunnel. These are also things that I recognize. Yeah. The blue tunnel that Leon Trout has to go through. And he, if he misses it, he's got to wait a million years for his next one. <laughs> yeah. Now, I remember in the throes of the booker, I, my email was clogged up and I was telling him, he said, no, I'm going to answer every single one. If I do one every two minutes, uh, I'm going to nail, you know, 30 in the next hour. Uh, and I answered one that day. It took me <laughs> one hour, 45 minutes. But it, it, was, it was someone questioning the math of seven moons. They go, hey, come on, the seven moon thing, it's a MacGuffin, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the dead leopard has been around more than seven moons. Dead atheists, they're, they're wandering around. So the seven moons thing, you just, it's just a plot device. And I was outraged because I based it on <laughs> Sri Lankan folklore, uh, yeah. which, you know, after seven days, you have the, the ritual, sort of a blessing, so the spirit can go to the blue tunnel or towards the light. And you have another one in three months. That's 90 days. So I kind of did a bit of math. I said, okay, seven and 90, seven, 13 sevens and 90, so that's 91. What's the next number in the sequence? Now, I won't bore you with the math, but there is X's and Y's in it. But the next number in the sequence is 16,000 moons, right? Which is right. 45 years. And uh, that's exactly, it makes sense. All the growth since 45 mm. years is roughly the time since really? independence to when the story set. But then I just in doing this, I cranked the numbers. And so it took me like, yeah, one and a half, 45 minutes to explain this to this person. It was very satisfied. I said, oh, thank you. That was, that was the response after all that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I cranked the numbers again. If you crank the next time, if you miss your 45 years, the next one comes to 1.2 billion. So you come back in a million years. So basically, ah, I'm saying okay. Vonnegut's universe of Kilgore Trout meeting his son twice and then saying you do a comeback for me is compatible with the Seven Moons theory. So that, um, yeah, I just want to <laughs> show off the uh, we've, no, that's, we've, that's we've proved that. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Getting your head around a million years, but it yeah. have been a hundred years, a thousand yeah, years. Yeah, but of course, yeah. it becomes evident why it has to be a million years. And I've never met Kurt Vonnegut or Douglas Adams, but I think Kurt Vonnegut would think this was a happy ending. Would you consider this a happy ending? Because I think I do. But or am I? Are we? Are we getting to the ending too fast? No. Yeah. Well, no. Kurt would approve of us doing the ending near the beginning. So yeah, right. Right. that's okay. fine. The question of whether or not whether it's a happy ending, which is an excellent question, is of a piece with the continuing question about Vonnegut that was asked when he was writing, and it seems to be still being asked now. Is he an optimist or is he a misanthrope? Yeah. 
is he is he is he uh, quietism seems to be this particular word that has stuck to his yeah, yeah, yeah. critical reputation is he despairing of the human race or is he saying you know despite the flaws in the human race there are moments of perfection in which we live we continue to live which will recur so i i i'm saying to your question shahan I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's a happy ending. I don't I'll, know. I'll, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. I, there is something about language that really matters to him, and it it it's it's a theme all the way through the book. Obviously, because the Mandrax is is ostensibly takes the responsibility of language away from the human subject because it can translate, but it also does, as we know, it enables all kinds of things to happen. In, in the book amongst the humans that have got the mandrax and the that the, the, there is a there are some um Kankabono, uh indigenous indians who become part of the story who the mandrax can't translate and so when leon is told to go after he's i mean we're gonna we, we'll have the blurb after we talk about the ending. That's even, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's we're gonna do the blurb in a moment, so, everyone. But, so what know. happens is Leon has been in Vietnam and and been involved in a massacre, um, a sort of my light type massacre, and he is told by the American government he will be rehomed, but he has to shut up about it, and he, he resists that. Um, but he gets a second chance of going to Sweden, and for people who haven't read the book. <laughs> The end of the book is basically <laughs> saying, but I don't speak it Swedish. Absolutely insane. I know, I know. Sorry, <laughs> I, I feel the words dying on my lips. But they just say you can learn. But I think this height. I think there's something about human beings and language. It's that it's yeah. The, they still, even when their brains shrink and they've got fins, uh, they've still got <laughs> they've still got language because language sorry. is about connection. Language is about about yeah. society and. and, and <laughs> I'm glad we've cleared that up. <laughs> yeah, so I do. I think it is kind of as hopeful as Vonnegut gets. Let's put it that way. So now they, it's peppered with these quotes, these non sequiturs, which I suppose, yeah, you could work harder to see where they fit. Some of them fit fairly obviously, but he starts the book with a quote by Anne Frank, which echoed, yeah. I think, almost word to word what you just said. The, in, yeah. in spite of everything, I still believe people are really good at heart. So he starts there. And I do think it, it's his heart, really, that we warm to, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Despite all this absurdity, you know there is uh, there's despair, but guy. there's warmth there as well. And I know what I got out of it was uh, it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the luckiest those or uh, those who survive just survive and uh, yeah. it's just blind chance <laughs> and uh, could be a case for maybe the stupid survive. <laughs> I want to come back at your question, is it a happy ending, Shahan? By asking okay. you, does the use of that quote from Anne Frank represent a happy beginning? <laughs> does he mean it or doesn't he mean it or both? It Classic Vonnegut, right? Yeah, is yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he mean it? Does he not mean it? When he's talking to his dad, Kilgore, at the edge of the Blue Tunnel, there's a, there is a moment where if he goes into the Blue Tunnel, he'll spare himself a million years of being a ghost. Um, and he reminds himself how much he kind of his dad annoys him. That's the first thing. And then his dad, uh, his dad says to him, um, you know, you should you should come out. He said, 
I'm learning so much about, he doesn't want to go, I'm learning so much about what life is really like, how it really works, what it's really all about. I said, don't lie to me, he said. Did I ever lie to you? No, sir, I said. Then don't lie to me, he said. Are you a god now? No, he said to me. I'm still nothing but your father, Leon, but don't lie to me. For all your eavesdropping, you've accumulated nothing but information. You might as well be a collector of baseball cards or bottle cups. For the sense you could make of all the information you have now, you might as well just be Mandarax. Just five more years, Daddy, Dad, Father, Pa, I said. Not nearly enough time for you to learn what you hope to learn. And that, my boy, is why I gave you my word of honour. If you send me away now, I won't be back for a million years. And he went, he then goes on, and, and then I think he says somewhere in here, he says that it's the Anne Frank quote, what he actually has learned, what he believes in, is the Anne Frank quote, quote from the beginning of the book. So, um, so it's built in. Yeah, it's, it's built in, it's, yeah. Because always, whichever character, all their motivations, uh, and you've got sociopathic uh, characters, the yeah. the Macintoshes, and uh, maybe the tech bro, um, Zenji, and you've got psychopaths, uh, James Wade. But everything, and even Mary, who's sort of the benevolent character, he always attributes them to some misfiring of their big brains. Uh, even the ship's crew who uh, become part actors and that, mm. the soldier who really saves humanity, this paranoid schizophrenic soldier who does it. He always attributes it to something that the brain told them to do. Um, doesn't talk about heart or emotion. And, uh, and so maybe, and I think, yeah, he, he says, is that the fatal flaw in human evolution? Our big brains that led us to, to do Could all of this. Read, and that's, have you yeah. got a, a bit to read us about the big brain, Shahan? And that, yes, what we're going to do is, we, Nikki, we're going to hear an extract from the writer, and then I'm going to do the blur <laughs> because I, I feel this is this is th- taking on its own Vonnegutian structure. So, okay, the villain of the story, and there's plenty of villains in the story, yeah. but I think the villain is the human big brain. I think that's the case he's making. But I, so I excerpted a few bits from about the big brain, and I'll read what the different characters had to say. So, okay, the first one, just about every adult human being back then had a brain weighing about three kilograms. There was no end to the evil schemes that a thought machine that oversized couldn't imagine and execute. So I raised this question, although there is nobody around to answer it. Can it be doubted that a three kilogram brains were once nearly fatal defects in the evolution of the human race? And then he goes on to break down what the brains are capable of. Uh, That, in my opinion, was the most diabolical aspect of those old-time big brains. They would tell their owners, in effect, here's a crazy thing we could actually do, probably, but we, we would never do it, of course. It's just fun to think about. And then, as though in trances, the people would really do it. Have slaves fight each other to death in the Colosseum or burn people alive in the public square for holding opinions which were locally unpopular. Or build factories whose only purpose was to kill people in industrial quantities. Or to blow up whole cities, and on and on. Why so many of us knocked up? Ah, and this is the explanation. I think this is me. I think this is what led me to use him as my prototype for the drunken uncle. Why so many of us knocked us major chunks of our brains from alcohol from time to time remains an interesting mystery. It may be that we were trying to give evolution a shove in the right direction, in the direction of smaller brains. So this is a fantastic justification. Yeah. But also what, what Vonnegut does, in, very typically, I think, Shihan, is he subjects 
the theory of evolution to his own skepticism. He's not presenting evolution to you as a fact. He's presenting evolution to you as a theory by a young Englishman called Charles Darwin and saying, well, if it's true, why don't we follow some of the logical paths from it? And if we follow the logical paths from it, we end up somewhere absurd. That seems to me a very, you know, a, a vonnegut trait. Push a an idea beyond its extreme to reveal the flaws in the idea, but not disprove it. Hmm. Leon has this million-year year kind of perspective, right? So when he's talking about a lot of animals, and uh, like the iguana or the dog, uh, dogs have still never learned to, um, they've not evolved to, to, to swim underwater and catch fish. And the iguana, you know, they, he just he writes about the iguana. Um, in real life, the children, the creature could be more than a meter long and look as fearsome as a Chinese dragon. Actually, though, it was no more dangerous to life forms of any sort, with the exception of seaweed, than a liverwurst. Here is what its life. Here's what its life is like in the present day, which is exactly what its life was like a million years ago. It has no enemies, so it sits in one place, staring into the middle distance at nothing wanting nothing, worried about nothing, until it is hungry. It then waddles down to the ocean and swims slowly, not all that ably, until it is a few metres from shore. Then it dives, like a submarine, joke, and stuffs itself with seaweed, which is at that time indigestible. The seaweed is going to have to be cooked before it is digestible. So the marine iguana pops to the surface, swims ashore, sits on the lava in the sunshine again, and is using itself for a covered stew pot getting hotter and hotter while the sunshine cooks the seaweed. It continues to stare into the middle distance at nothing, as before, but with this difference. It now spits up increasingly hot salt water from time to time. During the million years I've spent in these islands, the law of natural selection has found no way to improve, or for that matter, to worsen this particular survival scheme. So, I just it's, he's a very, very funny man. So good. That idea of the human being being uh, flawed by the big brain. I was looking, uh, guys, for what critical writing there was on that subject. And I stumbled upon an essay, which I just want to read you one paragraph of, by um, Corinne Anderson. I'd just like, Shahan, you to comment on this. Vonnegut's narrator never explicitly mentions, yet nonetheless echoes the thesis of the Hungarian-born British writer Arthur Kerstler, in which Kerstler argues that, quote, evolution has been compared to a labyrinth of blind alleys, and there is nothing very strange or improbable in the assumption that man's native equipment, though superior to that of any other living species, nevertheless contains some built-in error or deficiency which predisposes him towards self-destruction. That's exactly it. He's, um, firstly, I wanted, is the science adding up? And I'm not sure it quite does um, with how he populates that the final island and how yeah. the, the insemination and all of that. Uh, and then the <laughs> subsequent evolution. Um, I, I, was, I was trying to like work it out, but then I thought that he doesn't explain the financial crisis or World War Three, particularly. 
uh, elegantly and maybe that's not the point of he's just celebrating the absurdity. But he, he, he certainly believes that, and you see that in, in other books as well, that uh, he's yeah. trying to explain uh, the motives and the actions of the powerful and the rich and, um, and cannot, yeah, cannot come up with anything other than, um, I mean, I think I was trying to do that with the book uh, Seven Moons as well. And my theory yeah. was there are their spirits sitting on everyone's shoulders whispering these terrible ideas. Now, similarly, she's saying the big brain offers that up. And um, I've been asked this question a lot about the second use of second person in Seven Moons. And I always say yeah. it's the voice in your head. It's the yeah. voice in your head yeah. talking yeah. to you. It talks to me in the second person and maybe that's true of others. And that Buddhism and mindfulness. And I see a lot of, I think, as a college kid and as a young man reading this stuff, I can see a lot of parallels with Buddhism and yeah, uh, yeah. not the way it's yeah. practiced yeah. currently in Myanmar or Sri Lanka, but, uh, you know, the tenets of Buddhism. And one of the ideas, and we find it now, mindfulness, everyone's got their apps plugged in, um, but the tenet is, who is the you? Is it the you whispering your thoughts, uh, originating your thoughts, or are you the person listening to those thoughts? And, um, yeah. and I think... Yeah. I yeah. can see parallels there with the big brain produces these thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just seemed to me that that um, example of what Douglas Adams called the interconnectedness of all things yeah. um, with that Arthur Kerstler quote is not yeah. merely synchronicity. I'm going somewhere with this. Yes. Do you know, do you know which book of Arthur Kerstler's he makes that um, Observation, which is so similar to Vonnegut. Anyone? I'm going to say know? Ghost in the Machine. It is the Ghost <laughs> in the Machine. <laughs> not because I'm an Arthur Kostler scholar, but because of reasons that will come apparent. Yes. The Ghost in the Machine is the fourth album by popular British <laughs> beat comedy. <Conroe> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could not believe that, Shehan. I thought, what are the chances that that should be a similar expression of philosophical worldview world for this podcast, in term, which was referencing Douglas Adams, the interconnectedness of all things, which is in itself an idea derived from Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> because... Everything is happening at once. What a beautiful thing that is. And this seems like a good moment to hear a word from our sponsors. Okay. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Well, as we're at the halfway point of this podcast, it seems a good moment to introduce it with the blurb from this book. I've got a copy of the first edition of Galapagos, which was pub uh, the British first edition, which was published by Jonathan Cape. And um, it's got a very long um, um, jacket copy, actually. And uh, um, John and Shahan, you'll be pleased to know um, some plucky editor also takes a, a stab at um, a plot summary here, which I'm not going to read the whole of. Because I think um, it's like 
three paragraphs long. I'm just going to read the third paragraph into the fourth. And the fourth paragraph, I will ask you to both comment on, because I think the fourth paragraph is where the, 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 the heart of the matter is. So here we go from the third paragraph. In a sense, it probably was Mary Hepburn's brain more than anything else which saved mankind from extinction. Though Captain von Kleist took none too kindly to her playing fast and loose with his sperm in her ad hoc artificial insemination program. <laughs> Who isn't standing in the bookshop going, I have to read this? How was Mary to know there was a calculable chance that von Kleist carried a strain of Huntington's career in his genes? A hereditary disease of the brain which might have passed on to the humans of the next million years, a propensity in the male to murder his mate sometime in midlife. The good captain never mentioned it. As chance would have it, von Kleist was not a carrier, but it was a close ecological shave. I mean, that's paragraph three. It's, it's, it's you know, and here's paragraph four. At the heart of the gripping dottiness of this unforgettably entertaining novel are vital messages for our species. Not since Charles Darwin have the Galapagos Islands thrown up such thought-provoking morsels for our three-kilogram brains to ingest. Amongst the flightless cormorants, larcenous frigate birds, and of course the blue-footed boobies, we witnessed the law of natural selection in action as it has certainly not acted before. Kurt Vonnegut has never been funnier or more serious. It's pretty good. Those blurbs were long in those days, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And that was only half. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they, do, they go heads-on into... Um revealing some more spoilers thematically. I, I don't disagree with it. What, what Did you think it missed well, I something? I think the blurb is fundamentally all in the last line. The yeah, blurb yeah. is all leading up to the statement, Kurt Vonnegut has never been funnier or more That's serious serious. Because by 1985, you thought you knew what you were getting with a Kurt Vonnegut novel. And anyone who didn't already like Kurt Vonnegut wasn't going to read it. And anyone who did still like Kurt Vonnegut, 16 years after Slaughterhouse-Five, had perhaps had to work their way through other novels which they had been told were not as great as Slaughterhouse-Five. So as you were saying, Shahan, Galapagos is kind of published when his reputation is at a low ebb. And, and yet, how do they sell the book? Well, they can only sell the book by saying, if you like Kurt Vonnegut, here's a really good Kurt Vonnegut novel. Yeah, did, he said did any of those books that I mentioned restore his... Uh... At least his credibility, I mean, his, his popular appeal was always there. So Bluebeard, Hocus Pocus, and then I think, I think Timequake was a, a return to form. But did he never recover from that shadow? And clearly with uh, you, if uh, you never went back after Slaughterhouse-Five, was that, was that the general consensus? What he said about slapstick, he said, look, it's perfectly possible it was a bad book. In this Paris Review interview in 1976, he said, what was unusual about the reviews was that they wanted people to admit now that I'd never been any good. The reviewer from the Sunday Times actually asked critics who'd praised me in the past to now admit in public how wrong they'd been. And he said, well, you know, his publisher tries to reassure him. So I think there was a sense in which his, his, his reputation by the early 80s was, was um, and I think it was to some extent uh, restored by those three or four last books. I mean, there was certainly he did a you know he he you know he was very popular. I remember you know Waterstones events with him that were absolute sellouts. But I think Vonnegut anyway occupies a different place. I think he because he's been read in schools, and he has that crossover between 
like Douglas Adams, between science fiction and popular fiction. He's not seen merely as a, a literary writer. And I think that's, that's why, he, I mean, his reputation, I, I imagine all his books are still in print and he is still read by yeah. young people. I think, I think that there may have been a, a kind of a, a, the, the usual thing, the, the tall poppy thing when he got to mid-career and he writes a couple of bad books and everybody writes them off. But I think, he, I think there's, some, there's evidence that he's around for the long haul. I don't hear people saying who reads Kurt Vonnegut anymore. I think a lot of no, people do. I, I think it's very telling for what it's worth that we have made episodes of Batlisted about um, Kurt Vonnegut, but also Ray Bradbury, Joseph Heller, Thomas Pynchon, yeah. but we have not made episodes of Batlisted because people generally don't choose their work by about Don DeLillo, Saul Bellow, John Updike, or Philip Roth, although one of those is about to change in the near future, yeah. but I'm not going to reveal which one. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, the writers we discover, and Vonnegut seems to me like a classic example of this, the writers we discover when we are wet cement, when we are teenagers, lodge in our brains, even if we don't get it straight away, Sean, like you and I were saying, you know, we read him when we were teenagers, but something stayed there that when we went back, some seed was planted that when we went back, we went, oh, this guy, this guy has this to say. It, it's not, he seems to stay with people, Vonnegut. He seems to be impervious now to um, critical opprobrium or dismissal yeah well it's not this is not a dated novel i mean it could easily be but it isn't no no not at all if anything the technology yeah. isn't quite as menacing as yeah but um, it should be everything else is bang on the money uh, but you've heard that theory about um, the music you listen to when you're 14 or the music you fall in love with when you're 14 that's what stays with you for life so yeah police every breath you take mm -hmm. the singles that a cassette, a pirated cassette in Colombo found its way to me. Yeah. And um, yeah, at the time you're listening to Rick Astley or whatever's popular. So this was like quite anarchic to listen to this band that had been broken up 10 years ago or whatever. Um, but yeah, so 14. And I think, yeah, that that is true of, um, I mean, I was slightly older when I read Slaughterhouse. But it, you're right, it, it's taught in schools. Is, is it still taught in schools? Has, has it survived all the bands? And Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Shahan, you you raised a really interesting point earlier when you said the career is kind of um, divided into pre and post slaughterhouse, and to some extent, Vonnegut himself would agree with you. And I just wanted to read you this is um this is really interesting. I I I would really like to hear your thoughts on this. Here is a this is a brief excerpt from a profile that Martin Amis wrote of. Kurt Vonnegut in 1983. It was published by The Observer. And indeed, there is a review of Galapagos by Martin Amis, which is very interesting, in which he says the first half of the book really works. I'm not so sure about the second half, which is kind of taking the slaughterhouse, pre and post slaughterhouse theory and applying it to, to this one novel. But I just want to read you this. I, 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 and, you know, we are, we like Martin Amis here, and I applaud Martin Amis for, for saying this. He writes a profile of Vonnegut and he sets it up by saying, I'm a huge Vonnegut fan, but I don't like his later books as much as his earlier books. How am I going to talk to him about this when I meet him? Okay. 
And I'm going to read you the very beginning of this piece and the very end of this piece, and then we'll have a chat about it. So it begins in this way. Inveterately regressive, ever the playful infantilist, Kurt Vonnegut recently shuffled his career into a report card, signed it, and tacked it to his study wall. The report was chronological, grading his work from A to D. This is what it looked like. Play a piano, A. The Sirens of Titan, A. Mother Night, A. Cat's Cradle, A+. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, A. Slaughterhouse-Five, A+. Breakfast of Champions, C. Slapstick, D. Jailbird, A. <laughs> and this is written before those, those other novels, right? And Amos writes, The burden of the report seems clear enough. Kurt started confidently, went from strength to strength for a good long spell, then passed into a trough of lassitude and uncertainty, but now shows signs of rallying. The graph charted by the American literary establishment, viewed by Vonnegut as, at best, a flock of cue card readers, at worst a squad of jailers, torturers, and funeral directors, would be even starker and much less auspicious. Their report would probably go something like this. B minus, B, B minus, A, A minus, B minus, B, D, C. You know, he was never much loved um, in his era by the literary establishment. And Amos puts to him the idea that he has, you know, since Slaughterhouse-Five, withdrawn slightly, tried less hard. And uh, here's how this piece ends. Until 1969, Vonnegut was, in his own words, a trafficker in climaxes and thrills and characterization and wonderful dialogue and suspense and confrontations. Now he is... What, exactly? The later Vonnegut novels are deserts punctuated by the odd paradisal oasis. Those good moments are simply reversions to his earlier manner, which is why it is more fun to reread an old Vonnegut novel than it is to tackle a new one. I switched on the tape recorder and backed myself into the big question. Of all the writers I have met, Vonnegut gives off the mildest prickle of amour propre, but no writer likes to be asked if he has lost his way. He heard me out with a few, uh uh-huh, and then said, American literary careers are very short. I had very low expectations. I always thought if I could ever get something down about Dresden, that would be it. And after Slaughterhouse-Five, I've already done much more than I ever expected to do with my life. Now, since I don't have to do anything anymore, I've gotten more personal, freer to be idiosyncratic. It's like the history of jazz. Musicians reach the point where they play the goddamn things with the mousepiece upside down and stuff the tube with toilet paper and fuck around and make all the crazy sounds they can. An honest and accurate answer. I wondered out loud whether a sense of futility had anything to do with it with the rejection of melody, phrasing, structure, control, with the rejection of art. There was Dresden, said Vonnegut, a beautiful city full of museums and zoos, man at his greatest. And when we came up from the bunker, the city was gone. The raid didn't shorten the war by half a second, didn't weaken a German defense or attack anywhere didn't free a single person from a death camp. Only one person benefited. And who was that, I asked. Me, said Vonnegut. I got several dollars for each person killed. Imagine. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Great writing. 
So famously, Kurt Vonnegut survived the, he went off to the Second World War. He uh, survived the bombing of Dresden, and then he was um, by the Allied forces. And then he was, um, he watched his, many of his friends die in the Battle of the Bulge, and then he was sent out to clear up the debris in Dresden, a city that, as he said, he had seen on the train coming in, looked like Florence. And when he came out from that bunker, from the disused slaughterhouse, it looked like the moon. And he was employed to um, clear away the bodies of German civilians while German soldiers watched over them. And then he came back and spent the rest of his life attempting to deal with that in fiction and in, in a novel in Slaughterhouse Five. Um, here's a clip of him describing what that experience was like, and then his daughters, his two daughters, take on it. It was a great adventure of my life, and certainly something to talk about. I, indeed, I was there. The neighborhood dogs, when I grew up, uh, had far greater <laughs> influence on what I am today than, than uh, the mere firebombing of Dresden. I think Kurt, yeah, he's full of it. He's seen too much, you know, and he's just living through Dresden and his sister dying and all his friends and seen too much anyway. No, I don't. Did he really say that? You should see when he laughs at the most inappropriate times, but it's it seems right somehow. I think maybe this is his way. I think one thing we learned from Uncle Kurt is the... The tempering power of laughter, I think, in all this, the the, the idea yeah. you have yes. to just laugh at yeah. the absurdity. Um, so it goes um, and shrug and and yeah. smile and go on. And um, maybe this is why it appealed to me as uh, because I saw a lot of that in the Sri Lankan yeah. sensibility. Yeah. Uh, we didn't say those words, but uh, we really? shrug yeah. off every yeah. catastrophe and... Um, there is a smile which uh, may be masking things, but also there's optimism there, okay. Um. He was fond of saying that he preferred laughter to crying yeah, because there was less cleaning up to do afterwards. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, you might as well laugh because if you don't laugh, the alternative is, is not going to get you anywhere. Um, I've got a book here called The Writer's Crusade. I don't know if either of you have come across this by Tom Roston. This was published a couple of years ago. Very interesting book about the relationship between um, Vonnegut and PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And Vonnegut was at pains to spend his whole life saying, if you call me a victim of PTSD, you, you rob me of the artistry of my work. And the book takes a kind of neutral position and says, that's true. But if you speak to veterans of um, the Second World War or Vietnam or Korea or Iraq, they recognize Slaughterhouse-Five in particular as the testimony of somebody suffering from PTSD who is always there in Dresden, even when they're not there. You know, they're always living through that moment over and over again. And John, that idea about time in Vonnegut, you know, that idea that that, that time is something unstuck in time is the famous phrase about Billy Pilgrim, of course, you know, that idea that you're, you're, you're not in the place you think you are. And if you, 
and wherever you are, try and catch it because it will be gone in a moment. I think, you know, this book in particular, I, I think Amos is, is a little harsh. I think there's, there's, there's much more going on in this book than, you know, Vonnegut just throwing stuff at the wall. I, I think the idea of, of time and a million years and um and the you know the the, the the things the most important thing that we're all having to, to to grapple with at the moment which is the planet is being destroyed by yeah by human greed and growth and there is a connection there with this this ever expanding human brain we have a belief that the more connections that must be a good thing there's a lovely thing that he says this could be this could be murdoch or it could be this is andrew mcintosh but it could also be elon musk or it could be, um, you know, uh, any of the, the the tech bros or the billionaires. Macintosh was barefoot, wearing nothing but a pair of khaki shorts, whose fly was unbuttoned and under which he wore no underwear, so that his penis was no more secret than the pendulum on a grandfather clock. Yes, and I pause, pause to marvel now how little interested this man was in reproduction, in being a huge success biologically. Despite his exhibitionist sexuality and his mania for claiming as his own property as many of the planet's lifeless support systems as possible, the most famous masses of survival schemes back then typically had very few children. There were exceptions, of course, those who did reproduce a lot, though, and who might be thought of to want to so much property for the comfort of their descendants, commonly made psychological cripples of their own children, their heirs were more often than not zombies, easily fleeced by men and women as greedy as the person who'd left them much too much of everything a human animal could ever want. Andrew McIntosh didn't even care if he himself lived or died, as evidenced by his enthusiasms for skydiving and the racing of high-performance motor vehicles and so on, like Branson. So I have to say that human brains back then had become such copious and irresponsible generators of suggestions as to what might be done with life that they made acting for the benefit of future generations seem one of many arbitrary games which might be played by narrow enthusiasts like poker or polo or the bond market or the writing of science fiction novels. More and more people back then, and not just Andrew McIntosh, had found ensuring the survival of the human race a total bore. It's a lot more fun, so to speak, to hit and hit a tennis ball. I mean, that's brilliant, I think. We're living in that world even more than we were 30 years ago when I think I... Shahan, what about that idea that after writing about Dresden and making the great artistic statement that he had wanted to make, you know, we're fond of saying on this podcast, it's all one book. The work of a great writer is all one book. You know, it seems to me, having read this book, A, it isn't directionless in the way it was criticised for being. And B, it's Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. You know, it's Kurt Vonnegut riffing on a theme or more than one theme on ideas. You know, I wanted to ask you, as a novelist yourself, with an eye on structure and craft, and how do you strike a balance between making sure the cabinet is well made, but also making sure it retains energy and, 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 you know, a spark. Well, I think um, Laurie, Laurie Moore's uh, review at the time, I think in the New York Times, it compares the novel to an archipelago, um, a series of small islands. Mm -hmm. And he's a terrific nature writer as well. There's, there's little bits of nature, right? There's parables, yeah. there's, um, you know, childhood reminiscences. 
history that's invented history and, uh, and real history. But at the center, it's the confessions of a soldier. And so, yeah, I relate to this with novels with many moving parts. You know, this should be a shambles. And I think that mm. also him dispensing with suspense is also, but it's, it's more of how it happened. Uh, so, you know, I would have done this, uh, you know, like a slasher horror. There's, you know, the nine last people on, on the planet, which one's mm. going to survive and one by one, <laughs> the person you think's going to survive isn't. And there's a final, <laughs> I mean, there's a final girl, but there's final girls. There's, there's, there's about five of them. Yeah. Yeah, And I didn't feel that even yeah. though it has these different forms that it takes, there was a beating heart and you're constantly reminded of it, even though you're given the ending midway through. But this was something we were conscious of when we were editing Seven Moons, that there were so many moving parts that uh, readers could get lost. And that, so therefore we had a fairly strict structure of this a detective story of a, the only difference being the corpse is the detective in my book. But um, but you had to have this, he has seven moons to solve his own murder. Um, and so I think that's, an, I think it works brilliantly in this one as well. And that gives it jeopardy, right? Yes. The, the seven moons, that structure gives, it builds in a kind of Yes, and, and, and there's a reason. So these ramblings, you don't feel they're ramblings and you think, yeah, they're going to come back to the point. And I, I think you trust it with, with Kurt as well. I agree. Yeah, I agree. You said a great thing about science fiction. I love. He said, you know the problem with science fiction? It's much more fun to hear someone tell the story of the book than to read the story itself. Uh, okay, yeah. That's the, that's the great genius of what, what Vonnegut is, at his best does, is you can never quite second guess what, what this book is going to be, where it's going to go. He's always throwing in new characters. He's always throwing you off center. When you think you've got it, and it's like you were saying before, when you think you've got it, he'll destabilize you and and I don't think the end, as you say, whether or not it was is a happy ending or not a happy ending, you wouldn't expect Vonnegut to, 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 to make anything that easy. Mm. Well, listen, we're getting near to the end, and, and it would be a shame if there weren't a quiz oh, on this episode. Come on. So um, I'm going to ask Nikki, will, will you join us, please, for uh, uh, this quiz? Reluctantly. Yeah, I know. Uh, Valky, don't worry. <laughs> I, won't, I, I won't prolong the agony. So what we're going to do, we're playing a, a game called Slapsting. Slapsting. I'm going to ask each of my fellow panelists to identify the following titles. Is this the title of a Kurt Vonnegut short story or a song by the police? Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> okay. So, so let's start with you, uh, Shahan. Police song or Vonnegut short story? Out brief candle. Out brief candle. That has to be Vonnegut. It is Vonnegut. Congratulations. That's excellent. Uh, John Mitchinson, here's, uh, here's, here's your one. Truth Hits Everybody. Is that a police song or a short story by Kurt Vonnegut? It's fun. Vonnegut. It's got to be. It's a song by the ah. police, I'm afraid. So. Off the first album. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> right. From the first album. That's ah. right. Nikki, here's one for you. Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Oh, come on. Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> short story or song by the police? Too kind, Andy. Too kind. It's by the police. It is a song by the police. So at uh, the end of round one, it's uh, Nikki and Jahan tied one on one. John, John, still everything to play of for, course. John. Okay. I'm enjoying this a bit more now, Andy. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you said. So, Shahan, okay. Is this round two of Slapsting? Is this a police song or a Vonnegut short story? Bombs Away. Um, police song of the third album. Written by Stuart Copeland. Correct. There, there yeah. are no bo bonus points for this, but, but, <laughs> but well done. Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> and, and for a bonus point, Shahan, what was the uh, the drummer made some excellent um, solo records under the under what name in the same period? Clark Kent, spelt with G. Clark Kent, that is correct. Very good, very good, Shahan. So, John, uh, is this a Vonnegut short story or a police song? Jenny. I'm going to go Vonnegut short story. You are right. It is a Vonnegut yeah, short good. story. No. Roxanne, Nikki. Roxanne. <laughs> is that oh, a, wow. <laughs> is that a Vonnegut short story? <laughs> or a police song? Imagine if it was both. That would be great. It's a police yes. song, Andy. It is a police song. Okay. One last round of this. I reckon we've, I reckon we've got it. Okay. Okay. Han, you are in the lead because you got a bonus point. So, you know. Okay. Um... <laughs> I do like to show up. Yeah. Not my knowledge of Vonnegut, but... Is this a Vonnegut short story or a police song? Requiem for Zeitgeist. A Vonnegut story. It is a Vonnegut story. Congratulations, that's excellent. That could be a police song, couldn't it? Requiem for Zeitgeist. Uh, Something on the last album, maybe. Sting off one of his loot records. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like... Uh, Indeed. Okay, Johnny. Julie, here we go. Right. Is this the title of a Vonnegut short story of police song? Oh, my God. That is a police song. It is a police song. Uh, of synchronicity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm going to stop showing off. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we love it. And Nikki, finally for you, is this police song or a Vonnegut short story? I mean, at this point, it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, to do, 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 to da, da, da. <laughs> Which is that? Which is that? It's a police song. It's also the title of a Vonnegut short story. No, it isn't really. No, it isn't. <laughs> if, if only it were. Um, okay, well, I declare Shahan the winner for, because he got the most right. So congratulations, Shahan. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank Johnny, you. I'm sorry. Sorry, Nikki. Nikki, did, you did terribly well. Oh, well, that's, I tried my best. Good. It was very hard. <laughs> okay, good. So I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave our furry future selves behind. Huge thanks to Shahan for giving us the chance to discuss Uncle Kurt at very long last, and to Nikki Birch for crossbreeding the various strains of our recordings into the fittest possible uh, track. <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you want to try that again? I'll try it again. Sorry. Um, I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave our future furry selves. Huge thanks to Shihan for giving us the chance to d- discuss Uncle Kurt at last and to Nikki Birch for crossbreeding the various strains of our voice recordings into the f- fittest possible... Oh, no, it doesn't work. Sorry, I'm going to have to change that. Um, let me do it one more time. I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to... <clears throat> I'm afraid... That was where we'll have to leave our future furry selves. Huge thanks to Shihan for giving us the chance to discuss Uncle Kurt at long last and to Nikki Birch for crossbreeding the various strains of our voices into the fittest possible recording. Uh, and if you want show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 194 that we've already recorded, and I can't help noting that uh, if you divide 194 by 4, you get 42. Brilliant. I mean, actually, I know you don't, but uh, (laughs) but, uh, uh, let's let's just assume you do. Let's just assume you do. Something close, anyway. Um, Anyway, you can uh, find all those episodes at our website at backlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed, visit our shop at bookshop.org and uh, choose Backlisted as your bookshop. 
And uh, we're still available to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and general social media. If you want to hear us uh, chatting, doing backlisted with our ads, you can subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Your subscription will bring other benefits. If you subscribe at the lock listener level for about the price of a rum and coke in the bar of the Hotel El Dorado, uh, you'll get two extra exclusive podcasts every month. We call it lock listed because it began in the Wenlock Tavern just before lockdown, and it features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films, and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. Um, people who subscribe at this level get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of thanks and praise. So thank you to Simon Bracken. Thank you to Toby Dickinson. Thank you to Nancy Sinnott. Thank you to Rob Brown, former guest uh, of Monocle Cultural Show. And thank you to Grace Blackwood. Thanks, Jonathan Pierce. Thank you, Matthew Turner. Thank you, Daniel Wright-Hadley, Louise Hahir, and Jerry Seelig. Thank you all so much for supporting us. I'd just like to say, if you are a lock listener, uh, if you're not a lock listener, um, I've been reading a book this week, which I think is the best novel that I have read, new novel, that I have read since uh, Gwendolyn Riley's My Phantoms. And if you want to find out what that is, I will be talking about that on the next lot listed. I'm already excited about talking about it. It feels like a, a great, great uh, discovery. I'm not going to put it anywhere else either until I've until I've expressed it on on lot listed. So I have a bit of space to stretch out and read from it and talk about it. But um, Hopefully you'll join us for that. Shahan, is there anything you would like to add? Thank you so much for getting us to read Vonnegut again, for choosing this particular novel. Is there anything you would like to add about this book or Uncle Kurt that we haven't covered in our chat? No, it, it was an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you. I uh, Good to go back. And I, it, it's, a good, it's a book that does lend itself to rereadings, especially with the helpful asterisks and, and the short paragraphs. So I, I would just say, um, see, the report card, Uncle Kurt's report card only went uh, to Jailbird. It didn't, it didn't cover yeah. this golden A. Um, I would offer straight A's, and I would urge everyone, um, Latter-day Kurt Vonnegut, Hocus Pocus, Bluebeard, and the one that started off, Galapagos, um, fantastic books. Borderline A plus for me. I, I think it's a, I think it's an extremely um, useful novel. I think I think actually if if uh, people who are reading climate, you know, so-called climate fiction now should should pick up Galapagos because so it's hard to imagine hard to imagine anybody keeping all the balls that he keeps up in this novel uh, in in such a, a beautiful, funny, humorous, and and um, you know, I, I think uh, like like Leon. Trout, I, I'm going to stand with the uh, the epigraph. In spite of everything, I still believe people are really good at heart. I honestly, I do think that's what Kurt Vonnegut felt. And that book, is, that book is full of it. I think he was saying, "We are spirits in the material world." <laughs> <laughs> that's just my that's just my guess. I don't know. We can't go. I don't know. Very nicely done. Beautiful. <laughs> all right. Brilliant. And, and thank goodbye. you. Goodbye. I'm here all week. Good, yes. good, good night. Listen, thanks, Sean. Thanks, 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 John, Nikki. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. On an average, 324,000 new babies are born into the world every day. 
10,000 persons on an average will have starved to death or died from malnutrition. So it goes. They were all being killed with their families. So it goes. He tore himself to pieces, throwing up and throwing up. So it goes. And every day, my government gives me accounts of corpses. So it goes. Tried and shot. So it goes. The champagne was dead. So it goes. 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 So it goes.